you. So we are on our 14th week, can you believe it, in our series, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where we have looked at the people that are included in Hebrews 11 for their faithfulness. And hopefully we can, we have seen over the last several weeks that it is a faith journey. It's not a faith stop, but it is a journey that we are on. And although our faith is not perfect, Christ is perfect. So in our walk with the Lord, we have moments of good, moments that are bad, and moments that are definitely ugly. And yet Christ remains faithful. And again, my hope uh, going through Hebrews 11 so slowly is to look at the people in the Bible and see all that they did and see they were just like us or we are just like them, imperfect people who serve a mighty and loving God. So with that, let us continue on in our our second part of Gideon, uh, his faith journey. If you were wondering if I was going to do Gideon part two, yes. So with that, if you are able to stand for the reading of God's word, I invite you to turn to Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, and we'll read also verse 32 and 34, and then we'll jump back to the Old Testament in Judges 7 and read the first 11 verses. So starting at Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, I'll read the NLT. And it reads, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for, It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. In verse 32, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Merak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. And then if you would turn to Judges 7. Judges 7, starting at verse 1. And that reads, So Jeroboam Bell that is, Gideon, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns and the other warriors and sent them home. But he kept the 300 men with him. The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. 
That night the Lord said, Get up, go down into the Midianite camp, for I have given you victory over them. But if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. So Gideon took Purah and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. Let's pray. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for that gift, Lord. We know that it is you and of you, Lord. So, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, who he illuminates the scripture for our understanding. Thank you, Holy Spirit. And, Lord, I just pray that you prepare our hearts to receive your word. And we just thank you for who you are. Pray that you use me however you see fit. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, I don't. And we will be careful to give you all of the glory in Christ's name. Amen. You may have a seat. Just a side note, uh, it was pointed out to me by several of you last week that I said Mennonites instead of Midianites. If you have someone who's a Mennonite in your family, I am so sorry. And I'll probably mess up again, so forgive me. Anyways, I meant to say that earlier, but just to get that out of the way. So God is dealing with pride here, not just in me, but in this story. And uh, what we are seeing here in part two of Gideon is that he, God, is faithful to deal with pride. And God is delivering the Israelites from two enemies in this story. The first of which is the Midianites. <laughs> Those guys. That is the first enemy that we see. We know the numbers are large. We'll see that in Judges 8. We won't read that in this series. I really encourage you to read it. It's a wild ending to the story. It's in your... Uh, reading log if you want to follow along, which is in front of you in the seats. But anyways, the first enemy is the Midianites. The second enemy that God is dealing with is pride. And the worship of self or pride is rooted in idolatry, I believe. Idolatry of self, the worship of self. Chuck Colson, he is the guy who started prison fellowship ministry uh, many years after he got out of prison. Um, some of you who um, can remember back to a time of Chick Colson before he started this great ministry, before he was arrested and convicted of, and sent to prison, he was the hatchet man for Nixon during the Watergate scandal. He was a, a um, attorney. He was one of the people who did all of that stuff, and he was convicted, and he went to jail, and then he came to know Christ. And he explains pride this way. Pride is the ground in which all other sin grows and the parent from which all other sins come. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. See, not only is God dealing with the Midianites, in the next chapter you can see that there are 135,000 Midianites and probably that many camels. That's a lot. And you may think camels, so what? But at the time... The camels were the tanks, or I guess now the drones that we have today. They were the most powerful nation in the world with the most advanced technology, and that being warfare on camelback. But not only that, our, is God dealing with the Midianites? He is dealing with the sin, the sin of pride. And original sin in the garden, and, and if you think back to that, what did the serpent, what did Satan tempt Adam and Eve with? 
No, it wasn't the apple. Probably wasn't an apple, but what he did, what the serpent did, is he told them that God was holding back on them. That there is more that God has and he is not giving it to you. And the only time that lie works in our life, that temptation works in our life, is when we believe we deserve more or we know better than God or we're more capable, or we can do it on our own, and we think we are missing out on glory. See, when when we attempt to take glory away from God, that is when we slide into this pride of idolatry, and that's what happened with Adam and Eve, and we won't revisit that, but if you look back at that story on your own, you will see that it is completely on pride, dealing with pride and worshiping of themselves. We can't give God glory if we're focused on all the glory that we get. And maybe we don't use the words glory. Maybe we focus on, do I get credit or not? Do I get a pat on the back? Am I noticed? Does someone acknowledge how great I am or how much I've done? And pride is just that. It's so yucky. <laughs> I can't think of a, a better word. It, it is truly what... Chuck Colson said, it is the ground in which all sin grows. So, God is doing some prevent defense, if you will, to pride, but yet we will see it over and over again that it's so easy for it to jump in. I mean, just think of your own life. Think of the times that you got in trouble because of pride. It usually, you usually start with, well, I, and fill in the blank. So God is dealing with not only the Midianites, but he's also dealing with pride. So quickly, let's, let's take a look at Judges 7 and see the second part of why I feel that Gideon is part of, or included in Hebrews 11. So Judges 7 verse 1 starts off very interesting. It does not call him Hebrews, the author, probably Paul. I'm 80% sure it's Paul, but... Whatever. So Jeroboam is what he is called. That is Gideon. Let's stop there. Why would he be called something other than Gideon? If you remember last week in Judges 6, after Gideon, his first act of being faithful, his first response to being faithful, remember the whole back and forth, stay here, God. I'm going to go get some food, and then whenever I bring it back here, then you can consume it, and I'm sure. And then the whole fleece situation, going back and forth, the very first thing that God has him do is deal with sin at home, which was the idolatry, the, the ashpapole um, of Baal. And that day when he knocked it down, or I should say that night when he knocked it down, later on the people came in to go get him. But his dad said, hold on, if Baal, this false god, can fight his own battle, and, and Jeroboam is that name. That means let Baal defend himself. And it's interesting that we start off by reading verse 1, that that is his name. I believe what Paul is attempting to do for the reader is to remind who Gideon is in God. Like establishing right away, he has a new identity. He's done this whole fleece deal He's now ready to do what the Lord has. The Lord has promised several times, I'm going to give the Midianites into your hand. And by doing so, he's calling him by the name in which the first thing he did that was obedient to God. So just quickly, it reminds me all throughout the New Testament that we are a new creation, that we have a new heart, 
that we are made new, but a lot of times our tendency is to go back to the old ways. And I don't, have, I don't think I have to convince you. Think about the sin that sometimes continues to creep back from your past that is so easy for you to default back to. So this is really right, off the, right out of the gate. Paul is already establishing this is Gideon, not just little Gideon, the Gideon who is empowered by God, which is very important to pride. We have to remember where our identity lies as Christians, and it's in Christ, not ourselves. I think over and over again how many times um, I have told my children, Jacksons don't act that way. Bro, Christians don't act that way. Now, granted, my kids don't call me bro, even though I call God bro, but whatever. It, it's, it's, you know, you're at the store, and, and they may be misbehaving. I'm sure none of your kids have ever done this. Why are you so upset that they're misbehaving? Because they're misbehaving, or there's an audience? And you really want to just run around. They really don't act this way all the time. I promise. They're really good. Well, kind of. Well, I mean, no, they're not. But don't judge me for their behavior. So already the establishing, you know, Jacksons don't act this way. Christians, people in Christ don't act this way. So already Paul is already establishing what the Lord is going to do in the next part um, of, of dwindling down his numbers. See, what, what God is doing is he is calling him by the name given. It's his first, again, his first act of faithfulness. He's remembering he knocked down his dad's statue. You can do this. And here it goes. So if you were going to fight this big, huge army, what would you do? Get a bigger army. Get bigger weapons. And again, the Midianites have about 135,000 people in camels. And when Gideon blows the horn to round up all the troops to go in to attack the Midianites, only 32,000 show up. Well, by my math, that means the Midianites have 103,000 more people and camels. I don't like the odds. But so just imagine the scene for Gideon. He is called as big of an army as he can get to. And the very first thing that the Lord does is we're going to settle the pride issue before you go into battle. Look at verse 2. It says, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me they have saved themselves by their own strength. Now that word boast in Hebrew can, and probably a better translation is the Israelites will steal glory from me that they saved themselves by their own strength. You see that? God already says, I already know what's going to go happen. Although you only have 32,000, the odds are stacked against you. When you defeat them, you'll be very proud. So let me deal with that. So he says, no, no, you have too many people. I mean, think about Gideon when he's thinking about this, when he's having the conversation with the Lord. The Lord says, you have too many people. In my mind, if I'm Gideon, I would say, God, I was hoping you had an extra 100,000 in your back pocket. Let's be honest. What am I going to do to all the people that I eventually send home? I just called them all here to fight this battle. What are they going to say when I send some home? You ever done that before? You, 
You've, you've come up with a plan, and then you feel God is calling you away to something. It may be a plan you've already shared with people, and you feel called away. Now you're afraid to go back and say, you know, just kidding. Actually, I'm not going to do that. And your mind goes to, what will people think of me? You never think, what will people think of God? It's always, it's always me. What will God, what will people think of me? They're going to think I'm a failure. They're going to think I changed my mind. They think I'm going to be inconsistent, et cetera, et cetera. And so what does the Lord do? He has a specific plan, obviously. And he says in verse 3, Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. So what's interesting here is how the Lord deals with breaking down the numbers to a smaller number. The Lord lowers the number by means Gideon already knows. I believe God does this quite often in our life. But just to show it to you, if you turn to Deuteronomy 20, it'll be on the screen. Deuteronomy 20, verse 8 and 9. Deuteronomy 20 is specifically the way to battle, the way to organize people. Um, God is so organized, obviously, so he's put in place the way that an army should be prepared. And in verse 8 and 9, he says this specifically. Then the officers will also say, and there's a long list of the things that the officers say, is anyone here afraid or worried? If you are, you may go home before you you frighten anyone else. When the officers have finished speaking to their troops, they will appoint the unit commanders. Anyone scared? We're about to go to battle. Are you scared? Raise your hand. Okay, go home. Yes. All right. I don't have to fight. See, and, and what's interesting here, and what I believe here, is that God does this quite often. He points back to a thing that he used to do or a thing that he has done in the past to remind us that it is him. And specifically, the thing that he points us to is his character. So, and granted, yes, God is always doing a new thing. Not that we don't have to take a step in a new direction or the unknown, but God has this way of assuring us in himself, and he does this by pointing back to a time in our past. How many times have you been encouraged by something God did in the past? And then you find yourself thinking, man, I wish I would have remembered this earlier. Or perhaps God has done something in your life, and you say, I will never forget this. I will never be scared again. And then something happens, and you're scared again. And then you go through the whole motions again. You're like, this time for sure. See, what God is doing is he's pointing to Gideon, Gideon is the Israelites. He already knows this is the mode of operation which God does. So now, whenever Gideon tells the people, if you're scared, go home. And they go home. And now they're only down to 10,000 people. I mean, this number is getting smaller And they still have all these people to fight. And see, the point is, and a lot of times, especially in our our culture, in our society, we want to know the best kept secrets. That's why you see on social media, you see on books, you see on the emails that you get, top five strategies to grow your church, to grow your business, to become a better engineer, to be smarter, to remember more, to read faster. Here's my successful plan, on and on and on and on and on. And, and what we see here is this is not how to raise an army and defeat the people. 
That is what we want. I mean, honestly, if we we're going into battle, we want all of the Navy SEALs, all of the Army Rangers, and everybody else that I left out, all of the best of the best to go into battle. But yet, God says, no, no, if you do that, it's going to be prideful. First of all, Gideon, you're going to think you're this great commander. Do you remember where I found you in the wine press hiding? Let's just remember that. See, this is the, this is the wrong tracking. We have to surrender to what it is that God says. Again, we're looking for success. We want to know the top 10 strategies. We want to have a better team. For those of you who manage people or own a business, if only I had one or two better guys or gals. But it's not the kind of people that God is working through here. It is the number that God is looking for. It was small, not small enough, so they could say how great they are. You know, I was, I was reading some statistics about accidents. I, I won't tell you how I got there, but I, I was reading statistics about accidents. And accidents, the majority of accidents, probably, I think it's over 85%. There's some arguing over 85% of accidents, all accidents, are within two-mile radius of your home. And the reason why they give is because you are so familiar, or we are so familiar with the roads, we don't pay attention as well. I know this way. I know this like the back of my hand. <laughs> What's that on my hand? You know, it's like it, you're driving through it, it. It's what we become comfortable with. And, and think about it, not just, not just an accident, just think about it in... Your own life. Think of the times when you cried out to the Lord saying, help me, and he's helped you. And then you say, help me, and he's helped you. And then over the years, you stop asking for help because you've got experience. You've, you've got it down. You've figured it out. You've faced this problem before. I like how Alistair Begg describes this scene. I appreciate his storytelling. But the scene of being one of the soldiers being sent home, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it, but... Imagine being one of the soldiers that gets sent home and the soldier comes home and his wife says, what are you doing here? And he says, oh, I was sent home. Well, why were you sent home? Well, see, uh, Gideon was just sending some people home. Well, what kind of people? Well, actually, he said anyone who was scared. Um, what was that? Uh, scared. Um, so I, I just thought, you know, I'm really not scared, but I just thought I'd spend more time with you. So if you see that, you, you could see that picture. And then again, what Gideon does or what the Lord does through Gideon is he tells people to go and then he says, oh, you still have too many people. So then he invites them to go to the, to the river and start to drink. I mean, this is a weird way to whittle down people. This is not application stuff, interview stuff, send in your project stuff. Look at verse 4, it says, But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him to divide them into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup the water in their hands and lap it with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths right in the stream. And only 300 people... 300 of the men drank with their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. So the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, will I rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites? Send all the others home 
So if you still think that scene, okay, after all those, ten th- all those uh, whatever number we're at now, 12,000 people have left. Think of the people who said, well, you know, I wasn't scared, wife, but do you remember um, how you always got on me for drinking like a dog? Well, I was determined not to drink like a dog, so I stuck my whole face in there and said, neener, 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 but now they sent me home. So like, whatever it is, imagine the story you have to tell why you didn't make the army. I drink funny from the water. Now, commentaries, commentators have argued back and forth whether or not the 300 is significant, trying to find, and I'm all about numerology. I like how God is, is very organized. But what I see with the 300 men, some people try to argue that's because it's the men that always kept their eyes out, up, looking on the horizon for soldiers. I don't think so. I just think, I believe that God just wanted 300 men to increase the odds so that way whenever they went into battle, no one can say, look how great we are. Because if you remember, we just read it moments ago. If you remember the story, they don't actually fight at all. It's not the 300 mightiest warriors. I mean, they end up with a trumpet, a lamp, and a clay pot. I mean, like, come at me, bro. Like, what, what kind of action is that? So, so you see, what the Lord is doing is, is he's lowering down the number to remove all expectation that these are the great, great people. It's to, lower, it, it's to rise up the expectation this can only be done because of the Lord. So now Gideon has his mighty 300 men to go into battle. And here's, here's part of the first part. Not only is God gracious to to already do some prevent defense for the pride that would well up in the Israelites. Because all you have to do is turn to chapter 8, you read the end, Gideon dies, the Israelites sin in the sight of the Lord, he sells them into slavery. Chapter 9, chapter 10, they sin in the eyes of the Lord. So, I mean, over and over again, this is the, this is the judge's cycle, if you will. It's really the, the cycle of human nature. It's so easy for us to fall back into it. But God is so... Gracious to Gideon alone. And I'll show you why. So if you turn to verse 9, now he has his 300. And just below, they're looking down below the valley. And then verse 9, it says, That night the Lord said, Get up, go down into the Midianite camp, for I have given you victory over them. This is the third time he's told him that. Now stop right there. In, in my mind, if I was Gideon, I would think, victory, you gave me 300 dudes. I don't see a victory. And in verse 10, but, and this is God speaking, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Purah. Again, in my mind, if I'm Gideon, well, yes, Lord, I, I'm scared. And remember when I was trying to leave with the other 12,000 and you said, no, no, not you. You stay You're the one that I've called. See, what God is doing is he's saying, I'm going to do this great thing. And now that I've lowered your numbers, now you're not actually expecting a victory. And if you are still scared, go down to the camp with your servant Purah. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged. See, Gideon, this great mighty man of God, is scared nine-tenths of the time throughout this story that we're reading. You will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. So Gideon took Purah and they went down to the edge of the enemy's 
camp, and that's where we left off reading. So Purah is Gideon's armor bearer, probably. His name means branch or strong branch that bears fruit. So God tells him, okay, if you're scared, go down to the Midianite camp and you will hear the conversation. Let's, let's read that. Judges 17, verse 17 through 22. Or excuse me, going back up, I jumped too far. Verse 12. Verse 12 of Judges 7. The armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore. Too many to count. Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. So you you picture this, God wakes up Gideon in the middle of the night. He said, if you're still scared, go sneak into camp. No, I want to run the other way, but okay, I'll sneak into camp. So he crawls down, at least that's how I picture it. He crawls down to the Jezreel Valley where they're all laying out with Purim, his his, uh, man that's going to fight with him, his armor bearer. He creeps in and this is what he hears, verse 13 in the middle. It says, the man said, I had this dream, and in my dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. That's what Gideon hears, this man. So I imagine they're sitting around the fire. He sneaks in, and one guy, one of the Midianites say, hey, you know, I had this crazy dream. Okay, go ahead. What is it? I, I dreamt that this piece of bread rolled down the hill and knocked down the tent. Cool story, bro, right? Verse 14, then his companion answered, your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joaz, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. And what is Gideon's response? When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed and worshiped before the Lord. I can only liken this to God has spoke to Gideon in so many various fantastic ways. The angel of the Lord brought food, had a fire stick, burnt up the food right there, put the fleece out, wet and then dry. Again and again, he's talking to him. He's encouraging him. He protected him when the whole village wanted to attack him from knocking down his daddy's idol. God says, I'm going to give you victory And the time that Gideon finally believes, it's when the bad guys have a dream about bread knocking down a tent. And the guy said, oh, that means the Israelites are going to have victory. That's wild. I can only only modernize it this way. The first thing that I thought of is, how many times have I told, how many times have you told your child something? Again and again and again. And then one day your teenager comes home and tells you that they just heard the most wonderful thing in the world. Their youth pastor, their pastor, their teacher, their best friend's mom told them something. And it's the most brilliant thing you've ever heard. And they just go on and on and on about how smart they are. And then in the back of your mind, all you are saying is, I've been telling you that. For the last 13 years. And now you get it? You know, I've told you for the last 
13 years, well before you started driving, don't wait for your gas light to come on. It's a liar. Just because it says 25 miles, it more means seven. Or whatever it is. How many times have I told you, don't cook that egg on high heat. You're just going to, whatever. You never believe what so-and-so said. They said, fill up gas at a quarter of a tank. They're so smart. And the whole time you're just like, Jesus, take the will. Or whatever. You know, you're just, you, you, you're like, I've been telling you this your entire life. Why? But then finally it kicks in. You're just thankful they finally believe. So many times I have heard story after story after story of pastors sharing that they were not able to lead their own children to Christ. It took somebody else to lead them to Christ. Again and again, I've been pre- I'm a pastor. I've been preaching to them their whole life. They go to one youth camp and they come back and they believe in Jesus. They're going to get baptized and go on the mission field. Here's, here, here's, here's what we see, at least from the Lord. The Lord didn't care that it took the enemy's fear for Gideon to be encouraged. It didn't matter. So, so the question is for the parents in here, or the teacher in here, do you want them to know the truth, or do you want them to only know the truth if it comes from you? So many times we get caught up in trying to be the hero of all the stories in other people's lives. That's prideful. Do you feel like you always have to be the hero in this story? Do you have to be the person who knows all the answers that that person comes to? And we see God, a loving father, says, okay, I know what it's going to take for you to believe, Gideon. You're going to go hear a dream and an interpretation of the dream from the bad guys, and you'll believe. And look how Gideon responds. Verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed and worshiped before the Lord. And the Lord didn't say, oh, now you believe? No, I believe the Lord was so pleased with Gideon to worship. See, the response is, is when God reveals the truth, that needs to be our response to the Lord, to worship him, for he's faithful. Now he's all ready, now he's all charged. Then he returns to the Israelite camp and shout, get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. Like he's, he worships the Lord right then and there. I get it, Lord. I get it. And he runs down, wake up, everybody, wake up. And in verse 16, he divided the 300 men into three groups. So he makes the 300 now to 100 individual groups three times, giving each man a ram's horn and a clay pot with a torch in it. Get your guns ready. You see that? It's, it's, it's now he's so encouraged by the Lord. Now he runs down, he divides them up. Just a couple of things about the ram's horn and the clay jar. The ram's horn, same word, the shofar, it's the same exact instrument. If you remember when we were going through this a little bit earlier with Joshua, what did he use to knock down the, the wall, the Jericho wall, a horn? And worship. You see, Gideon is worshiping and he uses the horn. 
and then the clay jar with a flame in it, with a torch in it. And you may remember that from 2 Corinthians 4. See, God reveals a truth, and then a lot longer later, when Paul is writing into the Corinthian church, in 2 Corinthians, his fourth letter to them, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5 through 7, he says, you see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, he has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, we now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing the greatest treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. That's a beautiful picture of Christ. Just quickly with this, what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians, notice that he says that in verse 5, we ourselves are your servant for Jesus' sake. All that we are doing for other people is for Christ's sake. And this light that God has given us, the gift of the Holy Spirit in us, this change, our salvation, we are fragile Jars of clay containing this great treasure. We are not great at all. It is Christ who is great in us. This makes it clear, he says, that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. It's the same exact thing. Now, granted, Corinthians is written in Greek. Judges is written in Hebrew. It's the same connecting word for clay jars, which you could buy a clay jar for one penny. The most fragile container is a clay jar, and yet that is what God tells Gideon to bring into battle. So he tells them, essentially, what, what God is telling these 300 soldiers to bring into battle is to bring God. Bring your worship and your fragile selves, for he will be the victor. And that's the same thing that Paul is telling the church in Corinth the same thing. We ourselves are like fragile jars of clay. So then the battle goes on. You can read it on your own, but I'll just, I'll just uh, read just a portion of it because I like the story. Judges 7, verse 17. It says, Then he said to them, Keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. Again, remember, the Midianites are down in the valley. So now all 300 of them, this great army of 300, broken off in sections, are going around them. In verse 18, as soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horn, blow your horns too all around the entire camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. It was just after midnight and after changing of the guard when Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly they blew the ram's horn and broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hand and the horn in their right hand, and they all shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Just a side note, if you, if you want to go into superstition throughout the centuries, people have been actually looking for a physical sword of Gideon. They've missed the point. 
They've missed the point entirely. And if you consider this, just just moment, the, the sword, people were f- certain that Gideon actually had a sword and it had the power of the Lord, just like looking for the cup that Jesus drank and all of these wild things that our people are looking for. And actually, the sword of the Lord, if you remember, actually comes from Ephesians. Remember? Whenever you put, or, yeah, Ephesians, whenever he's talking about the, the various forms of the sword, and he's talking about putting on the full armor. He was talking about putting on the full armor of God, and it's the sword, which is the truth. So the sword that people have been looking for is actually the truth of, from Christ, which is interesting. The thing that we are all looking for is Christ, even if we don't acknowledge it. But it's not an actual sword. It's the word of the Lord that's coming down. Anyways, so uh, verse 21, each man stood in his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to the place far off, Bathsheba near Zirin, at the border of Albal Mahol near Tabith. They didn't bring a weapon, but all of the weapons turned toward each other and the great vast majority, all but 15,000, are killed. All because they blew their trumpets, their horns, and held a flame, and God had the victory. See, again, God is so gracious that he just wants us to follow and to believe. And again, that ram's horn is to show celebration and worshiping the Lord. And the clay jar was a torch with a light to show the light of Christ. So as we... Think of this and what made Gideon, I think, part two of the reason why he's in the hall of faith, if you will, is from last week, he never stopped going back to the Lord. He, he always asked his questions. He never just said, you know what, God, I don't want to deal with it. And the second part is God was already dealing with his pride. And the moment that Gideon came to the realization that God is exactly who he said he is, he worshiped. So in our faith journey, in our good and bad and ugly, there's just a couple of notes I wrote down just to be aware of pride. Number one, pray. Always be in conversation with God. When you walk in the shadow of the cross, it helps us view ourselves in the light of who God is. And if you notice, just quickly, and, I, and, and these four things I'm about to give, sorry, I should have mentioned that earlier, is, is exactly what Gideon did. So the first one is pray, have a conversation with the Lord. You see in verse 2, you see in verse 4, verse 7, verse 9, the Lord said, but the Lord told Gideon, but the Lord told Gideon, the Lord said, always, there's always a conversation because he's always in constant communication with the Lord. So number one way to deal with pride is being constant communication with God. Again, walking in the shadow of the cross helps us view ourselves in the right light of God. Second, obey. While you pray and walk in step with the Lord, he will reveal his truth. He is faithful to do that. Don't simply be hearers of the words, but doers of the word. James writes about that. Now, again, this comes from Gideon. God told him to cut his numbers down significantly. Gideon could have said, well, that's foolish. That's not what the world says. I need a bigger army. Thanks for your thoughts. I'm going to call more tribes. Nope. 
He followed and obeyed. And after it shrunk down, again, God said, still too big. Gideon said, okay, what do you want me to do? Go have him drink water. I'll cut down the number further. So again, the first thing, part of the feeding, fighting, pride, pray, then obey. The third one is bring someone along with you who will be faithful to tell you the truth. We see in verse 11, he brings Pura. We don't know anything except for the fact that his name means branch that bears fruit. So bring someone along with you. You know, I think someone that will tell you, you know, I don't think that's wise. Actually, I think that's idiotic. That's about as dumb as... Do you have people in your life who will speak honestly to you? If you don't, you need them. I don't think that was... I don't think that was right. The way that you talk to your son or daughter, the way that you talk to your husband, the way that you talk to your wife, the way that you respond in that way, I, I, don't, I don't think that's right. Because we have the tendency, the, the, the desire in us, if, pride, if we let pride rule us, to come in and get people around us and say, oh, no, it's okay. No, you're fine. You do you. Follow your heart, blah, 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 blah. You need people in your life that tell you the truth. I don't think it's too much of a a stretch to say that Pura was that person because if someone is the armor bearer for the commander, their most trustworthy advisor ever. And then the fourth one, at each intersection of your journey, worship. So worship. So we're going to pray. We're going to obey. Bring someone along and we'll worship. At each intersection of your faith journey, I would suggest, by the way, there are intersections every day to worship. And you see that's how Gideon responded. In verse 15, he, he worshiped. He worshiped the Lord. When you worship the Lord, there's, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot worship two things. If you are worshiping the Lord, you cannot worship yourself. And then just, just bonus points, I just, I just was thinking about this, at least in my fighting pride issue, is say sorry. Don't just say you apologize. Say, I am sorry. And then say, I am sorry for, not that you're dumb and you didn't get it. No, don't say that. Just say, I am sorry, and fill in the blank. If you wrong someone, say that you are sorry. And I would add... I was having a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a friend of mine. And if you wrong someone and there was an audience when you did it, say sorry to them too. That goes a long way. So, since I'm on a kick with kids, since they're going back to school, if you lose your marbles to your kids and there are people who see it, not only apologize to your kid, but apologize to those around you. Because so many times we, we can go and say, hey, you know what, son, daughter, I, I'm sorry. I, I, it wasn't you. I had a bad day. It's no excuse. I was wrong. But then all the people who witnessed it, they need to be apologized too, not just for the sake of your child, but for the sake you wronged them too. It goes a long way. And, and just to carry that note a little bit more, if you can't say sorry to the entire group, make time to say sorry. It goes a long way. I'll just close with this. I mentioned Chuck Colson. I really appreciated his uh, definition of pride, that it's the breeding ground or it's a place where all other sin grows. In his book, Loving God, um, Chuck Colson, again, he, he accepted Christ while he was in prison and all of the 
heinous things that he did, and he was called the hatchet man, and he describes himself as the most prideful, selfish, awful, abusive man there ever were. That's how he described himself. But in his book, Loving God, I think it came out in 83, he describes going to a prison in Delaware where he had began uh, his fellowship for, for prisoners. And it was the exact same place that he was incarcerated in. And uh, he, was, he was sitting in, at this wonderful event that was taking place right there in that chapel in the prison. And he says this, as I was sitting on the platform waiting my turn at the pulpit, my mind began to drift back in time to all the scholarships I got, all the honors I earned, cases I argued and won, the great decisions I made from lofty government offices. My life had been the perfect success story, the great American dream fulfilled. But all at once I realized that it, it was not my success God had used to enable me to help those in prison or the hundreds of others like them. My life of success was not what made this morning so glorious as I was waiting my turn at the pulpit. All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure. That I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation being sent to prison was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory, steal his glory from him. That's exactly what Christ wants for us. That's exactly what God had done for Gideon to take away that pride. So that way God gets the glory. Because at some point, we will all be humbled. Ideally, it's because we bend our knee to the cross instead of this great feat of humiliation in which God will still use. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story, and thank you for Gideon. And oh Lord, it's just wild just to see that the way that you work is not the way that we would work. And as we would try to strengthen our numbers and get people behind us, yet you tell Gideon to shrink his number to 300. Lord, we know that is because you deserve all of the glory and you knew the Israelites would feel that the success that they had, the victory that they had was because of them and not you. And Lord, that just only points to our own heart. So many times we tried to steal your glory. We cannot glorify you if we're worried about getting glory for ourselves. So will you help us in that, Lord? Lord, will you help us spend time to pray and walk with you, Lord? And not just to pray and walk, but to obey we help us find someone, have someone in our life that will be faithful to bring along in this journey. Lord, and at each intersection of our, uh, of our life, in this faith journey, will you give us an opportunity to worship, which is every day. Will you help us say sorry, Lord? Will you help us not worry about what everybody else thinks, but what you think first, Lord, that we come to you? So, Lord, we just thank you for the example of Gideon and even the example of uh, Chuck Colson. And Lord, we, just want, we truly do want to be jars of clay 
in our weakness, you are strong. So Lord, as we worship you through music for a couple more songs, God, will you speak to any areas of our life where we need to surrender, where we are getting prideful at? Because you're faithful to do it. So we thank you that you uh, use us despite us, that you love us despite our sins, Lord, and thank you for your son that made a way. In Christ's name we pray, amen.